Heavenly Father, we come before you in a reminder that you are so good to us. You are love, and so therefore you do not choose when to love, but it is an inevitable outpouring of who you are. As we enter into a time of your word being preached, we are reminded of the song we just sang and the assurance we have in its words. You've sent your son to fulfill the calling you had for him. He has conquered sin and death and sits victoriously at your right hand. Our righteousness is secured in him. So we don't need to come to your word with a defensive posture. Lord, I ask that you'd rid that posture from any of us right now. We can come to your word knowing it is first and foremost a gracious revelation of who you are. And in turn, it reveals so clearly our own hearts and minds. Lord, would I not be a distraction, but a humble vessel for you as we receive what you have for us today. In your son's name, amen. Now can be seated. Good morning, y'all. My name is Aaron Sweeney, and I am one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Some of y'all know me, some of y'all may not. So, um, and since this is somewhat new being up here um, recently, being in front um, and preaching or as an elder, I just want to go ahead and give uh, a bit of who I am for those that don't know me. Me, my wife, Emily, and my son, Leo, live in the Humble Park neighborhood, just straight south here a bit. Um, for that, we've been there for about seven months. Before that, we were in the Hermosa neighborhood. That's just west of Logan for a few years, and then in Logan before that. So we've been around here for a little bit now. We've been at Church in the Square since its inception, and we, we deeply love this family and this local expression of the body. And I say all that to just give words to the feeling of, of gratefulness to be in covenant relationship with folks here. And, and as I was prepping for the sermon, just thinking over that, and that in the life of a church, you go through a lot of things together if, if you're around. And, and even in, in the shorter life that we've had here, I guess it's relative, but in what feels like the shorter life of Church in the Square, we've definitely gone through the gamut of highs and lows, as I think it's probably normative within uh, ministry. And so, but it's, it's because of going through those things and the things that I thought through as I was preparing for this time that I've seen the Lord work in just ridiculously amazing ways in our body collectively as well as personally in my own life. And so I'm grateful to be here, all that to be said in that context, I think, to meet each week in community. And today as the Lord uh, speaks through me to preach his word, all that context hopefully is helpful just to, it's why I stand up here and in this moment actually feel deeply cared for and loved. Um, And though I'm like reading this off a page, so it feels recited and it kind of is, but it also is real. Um, So yeah, I feel deeply cared for and loved as I stand up here, and that's a unique feeling for me, I think, over my times in the years of being able to preach, and so the nerves are still there, but they're just a lot smaller, and so I say that all to say, like, God's really good, and I'm grateful to be here with y'all, so yeah, I'll get into it. Last week, um, we heard from one of our other elders, Derek, um, who started us back again in our study of Romans after our guest preaching series month that we had there. Um, And for those who might be new or just weren't able to be here, I would definitely advise you to listen to or watch that sermon when you have a chance, um, because that definitely served our body well last week. And the Lord definitely used, at least in my own life, I know, Derek and his uh, family story in a really beautiful way. And so I don't want y'all to miss out on that. You wait until this is over, like the gathering here, and then you can go do that. But um, definitely go ahead and take that time, because it'll be edifying for y'all. As I mentioned, Derek, uh, yeah, he got us back into Romans last week, the first four verses to be exact. 
Derek helped us understand a bit more into Paul's heart towards the Jewish people, where some in his Jewish tradition had misunderstood the law and how Christ was indeed a stumbling block to them, as, as Paul mentions at the end of chapter 9 in Romans. Derek mentioned how zeal without knowledge can be dangerously, can be dangerous. And we were reminded of how certain things in our life reveal this lust for righteousness based on self. And how they are just dry wells at the end of it. And today we will continue this conversation to some extent. But in verses 5 through 9, Paul will encourage us in what true and real righteousness is. A righteousness based on God. So if you're not there already, go ahead and open to Romans 10 in your Bibles. Give a second there just to get there if you need time. If you're not sure where Romans is, hit up someone next to you. Hopefully they can help you guide it there or go to the contents page. It is a grace to us. So Romans 10, verses 5 through 9. Follow along or you can just go ahead and, and receive this. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we get into the text today, you'll see that verse 5 starts with the word for which is a good indication that the previous verse is going to inform what we're about to read or what Paul's unpacking. So we'll look back real quick to verse 4 from the end of the text last week, which reads, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For, and now Paul will elaborate on the connection between righteousness and faith, contrary to righteousness from self from last week, and its significance. And as a reminder, this, this isn't a light thing for Paul to be leaning into here because, as we've noted, his audience for this writing is likely heavily made up of Christians that have a Jewish heritage, similar to Paul himself. And to some extent, what he's communicated here is, hey, basically the thing which you have idolized and looked at as life-giving or salvation-giving or what your tradition and heritage has propped up is in fact not life-giving or salvation-giving when poorly understood in the context of Scripture. In fact, it isn't a thing but a person that gives righteousness and salvation. As he hints at in verse 4 there. So with that in mind, we read into verse 5, which says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So Paul almost hands it off and is like, yeah, Moses gets into this, so let's, let's take a look. Yeah, Moses does say this. Let's go look back in the Old Testament. And this, this might even initially sound like Paul's conceding that righteousness based on the law, or termed maybe more modernly, we would say moralism, is in fact taught in the Old Testament, or um, the first five books with his Jewish audience would have known as the Torah. But that actually isn't the case. So we look at verse 5. He pulls verse 5 of Romans 10 from Leviticus 18.5 which says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. 
So he does affirm to some extent that, yes, it's true. If you do the commandments, you can live by them. So to live by them, to have life resulting from them, you must obey them perfectly. And to some extent, this is what Moses and now Paul are saying, but the catch is with the expectation that one does them perfectly to then live by them. Does with the emphasis of doing things, one's works can then lead to the ability to live and live not in just the sense of daily life, here point to the idea of continual life or eternal life, flourishing in that way. But no one is capable of this. So many of us might know. It isn't possible. And to be reminded, even within Romans, Paul speaks to this multiple times, one being in Romans 3.23, where he writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this isn't new news in this area of Romans for his readers and for us. In fact, no one created by God is capable of this because sin has entered this world through Adam, tainting the way we think, the way we know things. All our attempts and best efforts outside of God and if we stop there, that's a really, honestly, really depressing story if it ends there. So um, praise God, it doesn't. Um, and that would have not been only, like even to his readers, probably enraging to some extent to the Jewish readers, but also quite saddening because the reality is also Paul had Gentile readers in mind with this text. And so it could have been a saddening thing to read. And that's why Paul, he doesn't stop here. In the beginning of chapter 10 of Romans, Paul doesn't say, you know, they tried to create their own righteousness and, but it's impossible, and like, that's it. So, uh, here we, that, that's it. No, that, that's, that's why he says what he says in verse 4 to lead into this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In fact, Christ is the only one who could obey the law fully and did obey the law fully. And so, in turn, the law has been completely fulfilled in him. So, because of Christ... We can have righteousness if we believe or have faith. That's good news, y'all. And Paul goes on to talk of this righteousness by faith, starting in verse 6 of Romans 10, where he says, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And now, real quick, or maybe not real quick, actually, we'll see. Um, Paul is, he's in and out of the Old Testament here in this text, throughout the whole text, pretty much. And, and I don't want us to miss the beauty of how he intertwines the Old Testament passages here with what he is communicating in these verses. And I've already mentioned Leviticus, but we'll move into Deuteronomy, actually, for a couple areas for some more references. And I don't think this is just me nerding out, though I think that's accompanying this. Um, but there's, there's just such a depth and a beauty that is added here when we understand that Paul is purposeful in how he writes this and calls from the Old Testament on purpose. And so for those that want to follow along, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 9, chapter 9, verse 4 to 6, and then we'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 30, um, kind of the first 14-ish verses. Also, just feel free to listen to it if you would rather do that. So Paul's use of do not say in your heart from verse 6 of Romans 10 pulls directly from Deuteronomy 9 verses 4. And so the beauty of this is Paul wants his readers to recall the context that is here in Deuteronomy 9, which they would know as Jewish, as those with Jewish heritage would be very aware of 
the Old Testament scriptures here. And so he says in verse 4 to 6 of Deuteronomy 9, do not say in your heart, the text he, he quotes in Romans, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. So Moses is saying this to the Israelites right now. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now therefore... That the Lord your God is not, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. So the context here that Paul, again, is, is bringing into mind for his readers is that God was about, in this text, God is about to bring his people, the Israelites, into the promised land. And he couldn't make it more clear in Deuteronomy here multiple times that this is happening because of the wickedness of the nations, but ultimately because he wills it or the opposite of that, that it has nothing to do with what they've done. Their own righteousness. Just in case the first parts weren't clear enough, too, he hits it home at the end by saying, know therefore the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. There's no mistaking what he is saying here, but obviously Paul is still trying to articulate this reality here in Romans to, that, to the Jewish people and to the readers pulling from the Old Testament. He wants to invoke this moment where God is extremely direct and clear to emphasize how clear and direct he is trying to be here. And also another reminder that this isn't the first time that y'all are hearing this. One, it's not the first time we're hearing this, but also his readers would not have not heard about this story in the Old Testament. So bringing it back up in light of Christ. The Lord over and over again communicated that he is not subject to righteousness, but instead is subject to his own, or to our righteousness, but is instead subject to his own righteousness and will. And as Paul continues on with what righteousness based on faith says, he poses a question of who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. And to give some understanding, the, the parentheticals there, they're included as asides of sorts to further kind of interpret those texts because those questions he's quoting from the Old Testament as we'll look at. But in that context, in Deuteronomy, Christ's life, death, and resurrection had not taken place. And so um, he kind of translates that in a certain way and interprets it for his readers. And so if you look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, it says, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? And this text here in Deuteronomy 30 is preceded by Moses explaining to the Israelites how the Israelites will possess that promised land the Lord has promised them. And it will be followed then by the Lord circumcising their hearts and circumcising the hearts of their offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live is what he promises them. The Lord here is the one who circumcises the heart and makes it possible to love him. He acts. And that's why Deuteronomy 13 or Deuteronomy 30 verse 14 reads, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And why Paul quotes that verse in Romans 10 verse 8 when he says, but what does it say? 
This is the righteousness by faith. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul is effectively saying that that God shows an expression of his grace in this text in Deuteronomy and how he establishes a relationship with his people then by bringing his word near to them. Doug Moo, a New Testament scholar, sums it up so well, Paul's point in his commentary on Romans when he says, as God brought his word near to Israel, as noted in Deuteronomy, so they might know and obey him, so God now brings his word near here in Romans, to both Jews and Gentiles, that they might know him through his son, Jesus Christ, and respond in faith and obedience. So the beauty in that, too, is that the Old Testament isn't this separate thing, and the New Testament isn't this separate thing. This is the whole of Scripture and the narrative we're able to see is intertwined within it all. Now, this is really good news. God sent his only son, Jesus, as a baby to earth, to walk and experience this world just as we do. He experienced love. He was on the receiving end of hate and slander. He experienced sadness. He experienced confusion. The feelings and emotions that we have experienced, he has deeply experienced as well. As as, As not only fully God, but fully human. He does not elude the human experience just because he is divine. And it's not by accident. That's the flabbergasting thing about all of this is that God, who is all-powerful, willingly subjected himself to this earth. He said, I will be tempted and I will go through hardship, not just for fun and just as an experiment of sorts, but because he needed to take on the world into death, the whole world into death, for a sacrifice to atone for it. Paul says it well in Philippians 2, verse 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise God. So it's it's that word that is near to us, what Paul says there in Philippians. And Paul seems to finish the text here today in verse 9 with saying that the proof for this word, Christ's nearness. What's the proof of it? And he says, because if you trust your mouth, Jesus is born and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That, as a possibility, is proof for that. The emphasis here, too, just to give a little bit of a focus in the verse, the emphasis and priority should be, in, should be the belief in, in one's heart. It's not saying to dismiss the confession portion But Paul keeps the mouth and heart language simply to keep consistent to his quote here from Deuteronomy. And so we can look to previous notes in Romans to understand that the emphasis and primary part here is the acknowledgement of faith and belief as that primary point. We look to Romans 9, verse 30. A couple examples. Romans 9, verse 30 says, A righteousness that is 
that is by faith. We look at Romans 10, 4 from last week, to everyone who believes. And you'll see that over and over and over again in Romans alone. It is belief and faith in the word as a subject word in Jesus' person and work in this truth. It's because of this that Paul can say later in chapter 10 that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. And this should personally be really good news for us because it's because of this that we can be here and believe. For most of us here, that's the story as Gentiles. What was once seen as something for the Jewish people is now seen to be for all who believe. To better understand believe, here Tim Keller notes in his book, Romans for You, that you can look to the rest of Romans 10 to understand this. He draws from that the conclusion that the heart is a token of the whole self. Thus, we are to trust our whole self to the person and work of Christ as our righteousness. We are to transfer our trust from our own efforts to be righteous to Christ's righteousness on our behalf. That is the faith that saves, not merely a general belief that Christ lived or in his teaching. We must trust in his work, his death and resurrection for us. And I realize many of us here might agree with that and say we know that, we've heard that. And if you've been at Church and Square, I know for sure you've heard that. But do we truly, and this question's been asked too, we always have to ask ourselves, do we truly believe this? Is this true of us? And therefore, do we function within that belief in a way that puts Jesus on display, that has us humbly acknowledging that this is not of our own doing, but because of the grace of the Lord through us? Because we are still living actively within a broken and sinful world. So it's not something, I'm not trying to say to be cynical, but realistic, to be willing to examine our hearts and motives in all areas of life. And yes, that is exhausting. It can be. It's much, much easier in the moment to not engage with any possibility that we could grow and be challenged than to lean into that and see what God's word has to say for it. And Derek mentioned last week that zeal or passion without knowledge, without being informed by God's word, is how sin and death creep into our lives. And so a trust and belief in the righteousness of God or the righteousness of faith instead of a righteousness of self would mean we would have a zeal and a passion still, born out of knowledge that comes from God's word. It's a natural reaction or outpouring from a belief that Christ is who he says he is. And so to make it a little more personal, as I take a sip real quick, um, for, me, so for me this meant, as I was just sitting in this, realizing that the expectations I had on myself over the last few years, the Lord has really like refined my heart in this area. And so just kind of bring this before you all. Um, it, it, was, it meant realizing that the expectations that I had on myself, though most un, unknowingly really, that I was functioning within were not the expectations set by God for me. For example, there, you know, there, there was a time where approaching a sermon like this would be anxiety and inducing, or there would be a feeling of defeat at just the beginning of the process. It's pretty unfortunate. Um, all because I was functioning within the false expectation that the Lord expected me to just, you know, crush it. Like that was just for some reason 
That's what I was functioning within. To preach a sermon that I, I looked back on on a Monday and said, wow, like that was really great. There's really nothing to talk about there. There's nothing I can improve on, you know. And this really would play out in areas of discipleship as well or being a, a group leader. I'd have, you know, possibly a conversation with someone from church and leave wondering if I said all the right things, if I answered all the person's questions and being so critical and entering into regret pretty quickly. And y'all, real talk, at no point would I ever have verbalized those expectations out loud and been like, yeah, like that's what God is asking me to do. But that's how sin and how righteousness of self works. Sometimes it's, it's loud and obvious. And in a way, sometimes that can be God's grace to us to make it so obvious. And sometimes it's subtle, quiet, and manipulative. And I'm reminded of the lullaby imagery that Derek had for us last week in that area. The beauty and the truthful aspect of this, though, is that when I finally was revealed by the Spirit, these false expectations I was functioning out of, I could hold them up to God's word and find that there's no place within here that's affirming these lies. Ultimately, what I feared is that God wouldn't see me as worthy of his love if I didn't execute this perfect sermon that, who knows what that even means. Um, and I fear, I fear, fear y'all would walk out after today and have no idea what the heck I was even saying, honestly. But, uh, to be completely honest, like I'm, I'm often, I very often think my communication lacks coherent messaging, like real talk. And so, it's just, does this even make sense? Like, that's how I leave those situations. Um, the Lord has, has been gracious in me in this, though, so I'm not really worried about that today. I don't think, no. Um, but it's real. Like, it is just like, man, that made no sense. And I don't know why those thoughts come up, but the reality is God, God actually doesn't ask this of me. He doesn't even actually really ask me to, like, make the most coherent message. He asks me to be faithful to his calling to shepherd the flock, to preach his word and create disciples as all of us have that calling, not executing it in the way I've deemed ex the expectation, but instead executing those things out of an understanding of who he is and how deeply he is already present and active. And church, would we walk through this cadence often? Would we take the things we believe or we function within and hold them up to the word of God? It's not to invalidate them, it's, but it's to see them rightly so that it might critique those things, that it might reveal our fears, help us rightly view ourselves and rightly view our thoughts and opinions that we have in light of how God sees us and how God thinks in every area of, of life. And there's a lot of things that we can think about that are hot topics. And we talk, we're talking about how this looks like. So when the topic of gun control comes up, sorry if this ruffles people's feathers, I do love y'all deeply, and this has worked on my heart. When the topic of gun control comes up, we don't look to the Constitution first. It's not to throw shade at it, but we don't look at that first. We look to the Word of God, because that's where you will find truth and a hope. When the topic of abortion comes up, we don't look to the rhetoric of our political party first. We look to the Word of God, because that's where we find truth and hope. When the topic of immigration comes up, we don't cling to the loudest emotional responses that feed our exact fears. We look to the word of God. That's where we find truth and hope. 
When the topic of social justice comes up, we don't just repeat what we've read from folks on Facebook or Twitter. First, we look to the word of God because that's where we find truth and hope. When someone wrongs us and sins against us, we don't look to our feelings as the ultimate guide for how to act next. We hold our feelings up next to God's word because that's where we find truth and hope. And yes, if your response might be, well, the Bible doesn't explicitly talk about gun control, immigration, abortion, and social justice. True, okay. But if God is who God is, he said something about something to inform this. So regarding gun control, it does speak to self-protection. It does speak about how we might interact with violence. This isn't leading to your own conclusions, but knowing that the word of God does speak to these themes. It does speak to the calling of Christians to lay down their rights for others, as Jesus did. Regarding abortion, it does speak to the image of God in all creation starting at conception. It does speak about advocating for the weak and the most vulnerable. Immigration, we we have the whole story of the Old Testament, which is around a people that immigrate. The whole thing, pretty much. And regarding the topic of social justice, we have the character of God. We have the life of Christ as he interacts with the least, the lost, the widow, the oppressed. We have Jesus denying himself and his own rights as fully God for the sake of sinful and broken people. That should inform our thinking and our affections. Y'all, righteousness of self is marked by a love for self. Selfishness. And selfishness doesn't leave room to care for others. It definitely doesn't have room to put others first. Self is first and foremost and must be kept up in any way we can justify. And honestly, it's crafty enough to where selfishness on the outside can actually look like you're helping folks. But the reality is like, what are you receiving from that? What are you looking for from that? That's me speaking personally there. And it means we start justifying thoughts and actions here or there that aren't marked by God's goodness, if we're honest, for the sake of maintaining that self. In doing all this, we dismiss the image of God in others. Because in essence, we've created ourselves as God. And y'all, I realize there, there's been many a deplorable act committed throughout history as, that has been defended by God's word or the text in the Bible. But the reality is, if we look to the source of those, it isn't the word of God that motivated those things. But a righteousness on self that enabled those in the church to justify what they wanted to be justified, what enhanced and helped their own selfish desires. When you take those to God's word, unwilling to have them be critiqued, you will go ahead and find whatever you want. And you can find that anywhere, really. Not what was true of God's word. And would we look to history to remind us how fickle we can be if we depend on anything outside of the righteousness of Christ. And this is why we gather as a body. This is why we we emphasize and value, this isn't to pump up church in the square as this is probably valued in many churches, but this is why here we value a culture of confession. It's not just because it's like the cool thing to do, which definitely is 
I don't, that's not the cool thing to do, I don't think. Um, that's why we gather, though, weekly as groups in more intimate communities where we can be known so deeply by others that we receive exhortation when necessary and encouragement, and we receive critique or reproof when necessary. And it's why we hope and pray that our church family would continue to grow to reflect the diversity, not only of our neighborhood, but also of the Trinity and the uniqueness of its perfect union and unity, yet perfect diverse nature. That we would represent that as a diverse body, yet one body. We must remind each other that the righteousness we offer isn't valuable. It's not, it's not even been asked for. And it's because it's not needed. It's not needed. God does not need our righteousness. We look, Paul in Romans again, chapter 5, verse 17 to 21, he says, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, he's referring to Adam here, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Praise God. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, to make it evident. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God. Church, could you imagine the way the Lord could use us, his people, if we stopped being distracted by our attempts to earn our righteousness and trusted and believed in the truth that God doesn't need whatever righteousness we might try to offer up or think that we have to offer? Because honestly, it's exhausting, y'all. And it will slowly suck the life out of you because it promises things it cannot provide. It might promise a quick dopamine rush, and that will be fleeting. The Lord sees us as righteous when we wholly believe who Jesus says he is. Because it's Jesus who is perfect and righteous, and his righteousness that we reflect to God the Father when we believe. And y'all, this is why we must be saturated in the scriptures. And not the news or Twitter or Instagram and whatever else we run to for truth and knowledge. Don't get me wrong, those aren't innately sinful. I'm not going to stand up here and say, get off technology. Um, they're, they're not innately sinful things. And we can glean from them, actually, in a helpful way. But we often run to them as sustenance instead of running to God's word. And that's why I mentioned those hot topics a bit ago. Tongue control, immigration, abortion, social justice. The list goes on. There's whatever you want to choose that can be polarizing. And I'm sure most everyone here has a thought or opinion on these topics, which is good to have those. I just urge you to make sure those thoughts and opinions are informed by Scripture. And if you're unsure, hold it up to Scripture. Are you able to understand why you believe or think what you believe in light of what God has for us in his word? Maybe take a moment this week and compare the areas you consume from and how often that has an impact on how we think and what we do and how we see the world. And, and when, if we realize that God's word is low on that list, we have to ask ourselves why. What are we not believing of God? What are we fearful of that we know God's word might confront us on if we spend time in it? 
Because it's true, y'all. God's word is living and active. So if we're coming to it, we can be sure it's going to exhort and it's going to challenge the unhealthy desires of our heart. Exhort the righteous desires and challenge the unhealthy desires of our heart. But we don't serve a God who condemns. We serve a God who loves his people deeply, who sanctifies his people willingly, who just wants, who just wants our hearts That's what he wants, that we might experience the love and care that he has for us. Sometimes it's just letting the Lord do what he does in loving and caring for us. What love and affection would pour out of us, church, into our families, into the body, into our community, the world, if we, as, as Tim Keller from before said, trusted our whole self to the person and work of Christ as our righteousness and trusted that the word of God is where we find ultimate truth and hope. And I don't want to gloss over that, y'all. Truth and hope. We deeply want that. I think anyone would say they want truth and hope, and we have that at our fingertips in God's word. Praise God. Pray with me. Lord, thank you that you are a patient God. Thank you that you are a God who repeats himself over and over and over again. In your scriptures, we see that, Lord, and will we not gloss over that but realize We need to hear that, but also it's because you deeply love us that you act in such a way. So Lord, would we be encouraged with the reality that we have your word to look to and we have a body to be within to talk about your word because no, Lord, we're not going to come to your word and know every single part of it, and understand every ounce of it, Lord. So would we come together to make sure that it is shaping us rightly, that we would let it critique and challenge and encourage us in the ways that we think and do things, Lord. Lord, and thank you for your son and his work on the cross, Lord. We Would we be reminded um, in a fresh way, Lord, of that act of Christ? who is the fulfillment of the law and has now created a relationship for all who believe. In your name, amen.